You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hoon here, host, back with another episode down at the Oklahoma Hall of Fame today with uh, 2023 inductee, Mr. Jay Mays, or uh, from hometown of Maysville. Uh, Jay, thank you so much for, for flying in for this induction ceremony. I know London is home. I've got plenty to talk about um, that, and I am... Um, I grew up watching Top Gear in the UK, and I make I love cars. I don't know how to work on them. I definitely don't know how to design them. But as a kid, I'm sure I drew drew many red cars, as every kid does. The the first car they they draw is usually a red one. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be a Ferrari, but it's a red one. But I'm excited to dive into your story today. Looking forward to hearing uh, about you and your journey, and um, and congratulations on being inducted. It's a huge honor. Thank you. It is a tremendous honor. Yeah. Uh, what, what what was that moment when you got the call? Let's start there. Well, I, I was saying to my wife, Carrie, that uh, I feel like this is sort of going to be the longest distance traveled award because <laughs> not because she and I were going to fly over from London to, to be here, uh, but because somehow a kid from 30 miles down the road that wanted to draw cars instead of doing homework finds himself in a position uh, getting a... Oklahoma Hall of Fame <laughs> award, and I, I thought, how in the heck did that happen? So here we here we find ourselves. Yeah, amazing. Um, well, and it just goes to show, and the beauty of the Oklahoma Hall of Fame is stories like yourself. There's so many like that of kids that grew up never dreaming of, you know, having a job in something that they found as a hobby as a kid, and now you you know you've done this for for a very long time and obviously very good at it. Yeah. So uh, let's start there then. Hometown, growing up, um, what's family like? Brothers and sisters. I had um, I had one brother, uh, that was it. But uh, the, probably the three influences on me were my crazy grandfather S.J., who I was named after, mm-hmm. uh, my dad, and my uh, who was Tommy, and my brother Joe, and uh, both my dad and my brother Joe knew that S.J. was crazy. Uh, 
but I found that out only later, looking back, thinking about what we used to do. So uh, there's probably not many nine-year-olds uh, in Oklahoma or anywhere else for that matter that learned to power slide a car around a corner um, in the snow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did. Uh, and as you can imagine, at nine years old, your, your feet don't yet reach the pedals of the car. So you have to imagine that I was wedged between grand, grandfather SJ and the steering wheel yeah. of his 63, I think it was an Oldsmobile Rocket 88. And I would steer and he would work the uh, accelerator pedal. Mm-hmm. And it was probably the best and, by the way, the most terrifying thing that I've ever done to this day. But it was just absolutely great. Yeah. And occasionally he would take me out uh, on Highway 19 between Maysville and Lindsay in exactly that same driving position just to make absolutely sure that the Oldsmobile Rocket 88 would still top out at 110 mile per hour. So, so Mike, it's, it's actually a miracle I'm talking to you today. <laughs> yeah. so, so. All the things you go through as a kid, you think, how did I live through that moment, right? Especially back, you know, then. And, like, I'm, I'm 33 years old, and even the things that I grew up doing, like health and safety would, like, have a fit at now. I can't imagine what it was like, you know, back then with no seatbelts. Well, you didn't you know, think anything like, about it. No, you don't. It's just But, normal, uh, right? you know, it was, uh, I, I seem to remember that the steering wheel in that car had a huge sort of bullet shape that pointed right, right at us because it, that was, you know, the days of rockets right and uh you know it, it's crazy to think about it now it would never happen yeah for sure so grow up obviously around a family that loves speed and cars yeah my um, my my dad uh owned the local auto parts store okay so after school i would go down to the parts store and he would teach me about cars all the mechanical bits yeah uh my brother uh drove and raced go-karts and then stock cars later and anything else that would go fast and I absolutely idolized him Uh, but I was I was about seven years younger than him so I was unable to uh, drive cars at that point myself but I would say that the influence of SJ and Tommy and Joe my brother was an outsized influence in terms yeah. of my love of automobiles. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like the full kind of between you and the family, it seems like the the kind of circles filled, right? You got dad at the auto parts store, your brother likes to race, and you end up designing. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you think that you would design, or did you think that, you know, maybe I want to race, and is that why you idolized your brother? Because you just think, thought that racing was like the coolest thing in the world at that time. Yeah, you know, at the time, I, I hadn't, uh, if, if I were to tell you that I'd had a grand plan about what I wanted to do, that would be a, a criminal understatement. Uh, I was going to journalism school in, okay. in, at the University of Oklahoma, and I cannot tell you how bad of a journalist I was. I was absolutely useless. <laughs> so about my third year of journalism school, I found out by complete accident that there was a place out in California called the Art Center College of Design that you could go and learn how to draw cars, get a degree in drawing cars, and that they would actually pay a grown man or woman money to do that for a living. So I dropped journalism like a hot stone and was out to California. Yeah. How How did everyone take that in the family, that decision at that time? Uh, they were they raised an eyebrow because my dad didn't think a, uh, art was probably a great way to earn a living. Yeah. He wanted me to do something more sensible, but he supported me, thankfully. And uh, 
I, I reminded him about that uh, every day until he died yeah. because uh, you know it turned out to be a pretty good decision. Yeah, it worked out well. Yeah. So up until that point where you go to college, then I guess you're just you're always drawing. You always got a pad. You're always being artistic yeah. in some way. It might not just always be cars, but it's you have a, a, a you know a knack. For I, art. I would like to say in some way, Mike, but it was always cars. Okay. So I mean, I did nothing but draw cars. Yeah. And uh, I used to be able to identify from my dad's. Uh, auto store, I used to be able to identify every car that went by, make, model, uh, what the trim features were on it. Yeah. And I was just obsessed with, with automobiles. Yeah. So it uh, turned out to be a, a good obsession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So California, you get out there and you think, I have, like, this is my, I feel at home. This is my calling. I'm going to design cars and maybe get a job in it. Yeah, my, my, funny, my wife and I were talking about this last night, sort of reminiscing, and I said, when I was at the University of Oklahoma, I had no confidence that I was going to be a good journalist and just didn't feel like it was ever a very good fit. The moment I landed the first day at Art Center, I thought, this is it. I've got this. You know, I just thought, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So lucky is what it was. Yeah. Well, and you're right. It's a huge mind switch, right? Like you're, you're kind of going through the motions in, at OU you know, just like, oh, am I going to do this? Maybe I want to do something else. I'm not good at this. And then, like you said, you, you kind of, shining light calls you to California and you arrive and, like, you know, a huge weight lifts off your shoulders and you feel like, like, I can give this everything I got because yeah. I absolutely love yeah. doing it. I'd also gone through my party season sure. at, at Oklahoma instead yeah. of going to class. And so I was ready three years later to buckle down and yeah. actually decide that I wanted to be good at something. Yeah. So that, that timing was was really good. What uh, what was that school like in California? What were you designing? What was like some of the assignments you had and, and what kind of really stood out uh, to you? Uh, the first four years, or sorry, first two years, they teach you to draw properly. They yeah. teach you perspective. They teach you how to uh, understand color and, uh, and, and really how to put masterful art, artwork together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second two years, you drill down specifically on your major. And my major was automotive design with a minor in product design. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, that was the right decision because I liked drawing things with wheels on them a lot more than I enjoyed drawing refrigerators. Sure. And uh, so that's sort of the way the course credits went. And uh, by your fourth year, you're getting visits by automotive industry, both from Detroit and from overseas. Yeah. You're able to talk to professionals and start to get a pretty good idea of what you want to do, assuming somebody will offer you a job. Yeah. So what was then your, what was your like specialized that you went after? I guess what were the options too that you could specialize in? Well, I had a really good teacher called, uh, or tutor called Harry Bradley. Mm -hmm. And uh, he suggested that, uh, this was 78, 79. Yeah. So you can probably remember what American cars looked like at that point. They were very square. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, all the Europeans were starting to think about aerodynamics. And so he suggested I do an aerodynamic project. So I managed, with his help, to get uh, funding from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which was also in Pasadena. Yeah. And then we worked uh, with a university in Pasadena and uh, it had a wind tunnel. So I did an aerodynamic project with them. That was my senior year project. That caught the eye of uh, Audi that was coming over, who was leaders in, and still are leaders in uh, aerodynamics and automotive design. Okay. So one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew I was in 
Ingolstadt in uh, Bavaria. Yeah. Working for Audi. Yeah. Wow. And I have a friend of mine from Wales. He used to work, he worked at uh, Swansea and there was a there was Swansea University. There was an automotive design there. And I remember he went to like Recaro, then to Lenta, like Barcelona for something. And he worked for Lamborghini for a little bit designing seats. And he is now in Montreal working for Air Canada designing seats. Um, he came to the States. He was in Dallas working for someone, but now got to do yeah. But he's always been in the seat world, right? Yeah, everybody's yeah. got an expertise. Yeah. You know? And uh, I've got friends uh, that worked, uh, a woman, uh, Laura Blosfeld, that worked at Porsche. Her specialty was seats. Mm-hmm. And she did for 10 years all the seats for Porsche. Yeah. You know, say, Some comfortable seats. Yeah, <laughs> really. and good looking as and well. And great looking yeah. seats. Yeah, those carbon fiber bucket seats could yeah. sit in my front room as artwork. <laughs> like, <laughs> they look beautiful, those one piece seats. But so, so it takes you to Bavaria. Yeah, and that was a bit of an eye opener. Oh, so yeah. I'd never, I'd never been overseas. The first time I'd had a passport in my hand. Yeah, and that would have been 1980. How old are you at that point? Um, I guess I'd have been about 26. Okay, 25, 26. And uh, I had this definite idea. I did not want to go to Detroit because I didn't like the way the cars looked, uh-huh. and I really liked the way German cars, in particular, looked. So when the offer from Audi came, I thought. I'm going to go do that for two years, mm-hmm. just get some Europe out under my butt, under my belt, mm-hmm. and then 15 years later, I found myself the head of Audi Design. Yeah. So you know, I stayed on, and you know, it was one of those life-changing events that the culture that you're in ends up influencing the way you think, and yeah. uh, that was a major growth period for me in terms of my design ability. Uh, what I mean, the, when I think of Audi, obviously I think of the TT, which you had a lot of involvement in. Um, I think of Group B Rally as well. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, when I was first joining them, uh, the month before I joined, this was 1980, mm-hmm. they had just introduced the Quattro, yeah. the, the Ur, what they call the Ur Quattro. Mm-hmm. And uh, first time they had four-wheel drive. And uh, then they got into rally racing, mm-hmm. and Michelle Mouton yeah. uh, was a masterful driver, and she got a lot of press not only because she was a woman, but because she was winning races yeah. with Quattro. And so that's where I got very, very excited about uh, racing as well. Mm-hmm. And then we went on to sort of start to understand, well, what does four-wheel visually look like, four-wheel drive visually look like? Right. And uh, you want to put the emphasis in the design of the exterior on the on the wheels, uh, and that's what we did, and that influenced the next, I guess, three generations of cars. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, when that Quattro came on the scene, it just dominated World Rally, and not, I mean, the, the state of World Rally at the time. When you watch the videos of these cars just going through crowds at you know 100 mile an hour, and you're like, yeah, this really, people, this is insane, dangerous, very dangerous, dangerous you yeah. know. And like the stories of like. You know, at the end of the race, like the co-drivers are like pulling fingers out of the fins of the car because like it would take fingers off the space. I mean, it's, yeah. it's insane how like unsafe it was. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I, I mean, you can't imagine what the drivers are thinking at that time. That's like, terrifying. Through, it is, yeah, you're right. Terrifying is a great word for it. Um, but it's exciting for you to be during you know, around that, and obviously you grow up, you know, watching your brother race and dad do the auto parts store. And now you're you're kind of in the center of design, yeah. and, and you're in you know you're in Europe as well, which I guess at the time everyone sees European cars as like a bit more you know 
let's say, more aesthetically pleasing than some of the American cars. Yeah, right? yeah they, um, I think you put that very, <laughs> right, very, very subtly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and obviously, like American cars generally are designed to go straight and fast. You know, whereas it seems like the Europeans know how to go around a corner and want to yeah. have more corners to go to mountains and yeah. snow and all the other stuff that you got to think about when designing. Um, what was your like? best, I guess, memories of Audi then, over um, the 18 years? Well, I think uh, arriving there, just as the original, what they call the very aerodynamic Audi 100 came out, yeah. and that was a milestone. And uh, and then we, we did, uh, between 1980 when I arrived and 1994 when I left, I guess we got through three generations of cars. Um, so... Probably the three cars, and, and by the way, I left in 94, but we had just designed the TT, yeah. which didn't come out until 98. Yeah. So my three favorite cars that I, I were, was able to work on would have been the um, original Audi 100, uh, the second generation Audi 100. Uh, I worked on a concept car called the Audi Avis, which was a four-wheel drive sort of homage to the auto union racers from the 30s. Mm-hmm. And it, we, this is just complete serendipity, but the, at the time we released that car was just after the Berlin Wall fell. Wow. So it was the first time in however many decades mm-hmm. that the Germans were able to look back over their shoulder and think about something other than their horrific uh, yeah. past uh, politically. And they yeah. became very proud again about their mechanical prowess mm-hmm. and their engineering capability. And so that fit right into the whole narrative of the wall falling, the unification of Germany. And that, as much as anything, made the Audi Avis a real stellar, uh, exciting car to see. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to tell you that I had all that in grip. It was a complete accident that the wall fell. And, <laughs> and it happened to be in line with the narrative that I had for the car. Yeah. yeah. So that was the second one. And then the third one would be the Audi TT, right. which uh, they've just finished the third generation production on mm-hmm. this year. And uh, I hate to see it go, yeah. but uh, I think that was uh, kind of a game changer for the industry. No, I agree. And it's what, it's probably mad you know, for you to look at what, what the car is now and the amount of power they put through those cars now. Yeah. Like some of the, the horsepower that those engines are putting out and the, and the car and the load it's taking, it's, I mean, obviously in the States, people are tuning them and drag racing them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an iconic car for Audi. Right? Yeah. And it, it, it sort of established the, that car and the Audi, the Audi Avis that I mentioned, both those cars established the, what I would call the design DNA uh, of Audis. Yeah. And that's pretty much intact now all these years later. Yeah. So, whereas I always feel Mercedes and particularly BMW have sort of gone off the rails, mm. uh, an Audi still looks like a German car, and yeah. that's precisely the appeal. Yeah. Yeah. What I, I, mean, I don't know what BMW are doing right now with that front grille that they decided to bring back. That looks horrendous, <laughs> which also looks a lot worse in the UK because you have to have a front license plate on it. Yep. It doesn't look as bad. It is, um, it is quite it's hideous, uh, isn't it? It is it's quite odd, uh, I have to say. Then, yeah, and then I don't, the Mercedes just can't seem to make up their minds at which what they're doing. But um, So where, where do you go after Audi? Uh, after Audi, 
uh, I thought, I know what the next, or during Audi, I thought, I know what the next two generations of Audis are going to look like. Yeah. So I decided to go back to California, and I was going to be semi-retired, and then I found, or I was contacted by this communications company in Scottsdale, Arizona, about coming to work for them and helping them do brand positioning. Okay. And I thought, I don't, don't know absolutely everything about brand positioning, but I kind of intuitively know, I think, what I would do, and I could possibly give them an in into different auto companies. So we had different clients, and we had Nissan and uh, Toyota out on the West Coast, and then one of my clients was, or one of our clients, was Ford. Okay. And we'd worked with them for about six months, and then I got a call asking me to uh, come to Dearborn, and I thought they wanted to do some more work with our company, mm-hmm. and they actually wanted to hire me to be the next design VP. So that was sort of a surprise. And uh, what I did from from there was leave Los Angeles, mm-hmm. go to Detroit, and then I was with Ford for uh, 15 years before before, wow. before I left. Yeah. And seven of that was when in Detroit. They were gracious enough to let me work uh in London for eight of those years. Yeah. And then I came back and did another another year or half year in Detroit before I retired. Yeah. What? Uh, how different was Ford compared to Audi? Uh, completely. Yeah. Uh, I, I always thought I was in the car business uh, when I was at Audi, and they would at that time Audi was selling four to five hundred thousand cars a year in mm. the U.S. And I, the, the day I entered Ford, the, the VP of sales, in fact, it might, it might have been Steve Lyons, took me aside and it was like, kid, we sell 400,000 Explorers a year. <laughs> and we've got about 36 other lines of cars we yeah, sell. So I, went, the big okay. leagues. I, I was like, shit, okay, now I'm in the auto business. Right. Yeah, definitely. That, that's probably a thing Steve would say. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, so, I mean... You designed the F one hundred and fifty and the Mustang is kind of the, mo- the, the most things you're probably known for, right? Uh, certainly, of, certainly at Ford. At yeah. Ford, yeah. yeah. What era of Mustang and what era of F one hundred and fifty? Both from uh, the, the, when I started working on those. I, so I joined Ford in ninety seven. Okay. The first uh, Mustang that I worked on came out in two thousand five. Okay. So I did the two thousand five, two thousand ten and the 2015 versions, so three generations of Mustangs. Yeah. And it, it, I can't tell you that it's exactly those dates on the F-150, sure. but very, very, very close to yeah. that as well. And that, that's one thing that people probably listening don't understand is that like, you know, the cars that are coming out now were designed, you know, a long time ago. Five to seven years pri- right? prior. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and that, it takes that long, the process to do everything. And um, there's a guy in Oklahoma um, God, tiny little town, and he struck up. He managed to strike up. A, he's been on the podcast. I just can't remember his name. He struck up a relationship with Ford, and he would get pre-production Mustangs mm. and pre and and he would drag race them and set world land speed records in. Wow. So right now he has pre-production, um, like the first ten pre-production of I think the 05 Mustang. Wow! Um, I'll 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 have I'll I'd show like you to know who that is. Yeah, yeah. Brent. Oh, that's right. Uh, Hayek Motorsports is is his place. Hayek Motorsports. Yeah, in um, he's in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. He bought an old school in his hometown, and it's all got all his old race cars in it and all his stuff. But the other thing he did was he had an 
an F-250 diesel that they ran on biofuel and set a land speed record on it on biofuel. Goodness and me. I think it was like a 2012, or well, it's something that, it's in that, it's a 10-year-old truck. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, kind of in that, like the one that was like a two-tone gold and like that bronze color. Um, I'll show you photos when we get done of the spot because it, it's a museum now. Um, but he, he, you know, He's a farmer, right? And just loved to drag just race. Just loves that. So he knows all the corn-fed stuff. And That's all that fantastic. Stuff. But, um, small world that he's just in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. Um, Ames. Ames is the town. Ames, Oklahoma. Ames, yeah. Um, but yeah, just, uh, and, and I was up there earlier this year and chatting to him. And he, I said, how do you strike up a car? You know, how do you get to know? How do you get pre-production cars from Ford? And he's also, he's the guy who owns the, the GT1 concept car. Oh, so he's the one. He's the he's the guy that has it. Wow! Uh, and he said these are all dollar cars because Ford couldn't technically sell them because they're pre-production. But he bought them all for one dollar each. Gosh! So they're, they're all dollar cars. I'm like, that's amazing. That's nuts, right? Because a GT1 is worth an outrageous amount of yeah, money good, now. Good for him, right? But yeah. like you know, he, he has a he has an agreement that you know wherever they need wherever Ford needs that car at a museum, like he'll get it there. Um, but yeah, it's this that's beautiful great. looking car. Um, it was arms. Yeah, I mean, only it's, again, small world Oklahoma, right? Yeah, who would, never who would think? There. Yeah. Um, so Ford uh, seems like you know the big leagues, great experience, a lot more scale, yeah, uh, and a lot more. You know, you're selling a lot more cars, and yeah. But also that leads to you know by producing at that scale, I mean, inevitably there's going to be problems, right? When you're producing that many cars, um, how do you go about that? How do you go about designing, knowing that like, hey, we're now selling, you know hundreds of thousands of vehicles and, and, and yeah, a team and the, all this production all this good, stuff. good question at, at Audi it was uh, it was just I wouldn't say it was easier it was different yeah so there was a certain standard that Audi wanted because they were producing far fewer cars yeah. and there was a certain at, at Ford a certain line speed that yeah. they wanted uh, not to, to to diminish quality but there was a certain line speed that they wanted in order to pr produce the number of vehicles that were in demand and so you have to just do slight adjustments for that. I, I wouldn't say it changes your creativity, yeah. uh, but it changes your the way you work with engineering and manufacturing. Okay. During, uh, during the process that you go to Ford, is the technology really starts to change at that time, right? Like yeah. with, with CAD coming in and like, I mean, I assume in your early days you were used to just like... You've got a mold, and you just you know. In the in the early days, we we did it all with clay. clay. Stuff, yeah, uh, we would we would measure the clay by hand, mm -hmm. and we would have these huge lofting tables, like you would draw a ship. Yeah, and we would lay out the lines and look at them on the drawing table, and then ten years later, you're doing it all in the computer. Yeah, do you we still do still do clay. Do you miss the clay like the? the I, I, you know, it's it's weird. I love the smell of clay yeah. and the lanolin in it. I, don't ask me why, but if I go into a studio that's still using clay, of which there are many, uh, it's just a wonderful smell. Yeah, yeah. Well, and back to I think the process, right? Like, and and back to not saying that the process of working on CAD is it should be diminished or whatever, but just like that that process of getting your hands dirty and figuring it out and designing. And, and I, I love seeing people who like, you know, the people who like beat panels and, you know, and yeah. all that, like that is such a skill, you know, to do that. Right. Yeah. And it's the same when you design a car with, you know, looking through the lines and seeing everything and aerodynamics and how's yeah. this going to fit. And then one of, one of so the, much goes into One it. of the real pleasures I had at Ford, because Ford also owned Aston Martin mm -hmm. at the time, was to uh, go to Newport Pagnell and see the guys that actually hammer and roll aluminium out. 
I'm, I'm only saying aluminium for your benefit. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no one else is going to catch that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was that. Talk about artistry. Yeah. And I, I thought, well, you couldn't pay those men enough money because it's just. It's an art form. Yeah. yeah. So one of my favorite looking cars and sounding cars too is that DB9 V12 Vanquish that was yeah. in, that was in James Bond. Yeah. The one that they set a world record for for rolling so many times. I that's in, right. I think it was Casino Royale. Yeah. It was, the, it was the DBS. DBS. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so I, I worked on that with my friend Ian Collum, who was the head of design yeah. for Jaguar at the time, and uh, I think of all the cars that I worked on. At Ford, that weren't American. Yeah, that would be it. How how did that come about? Uh, well, we had uh, we had just started to work on a next generation of, of Aston Martins. We were trying to decide: is that going to be front engine or mid engine? Mm. And the decision, thankfully, was taken that it would remain front engine, yeah. which allowed us to build off the heritage of the DB4, DB5. And, and then uh, Ian had done a great job on a DB7. And so we looked at that and we thought, all right, what are we going to do to shrink wrap this a little bit more right. and just make it slightly tauter, slightly more muscular? But we always described it as uh, a really tough car mm -hmm. in an extraordinarily well-tailored suit. And yeah. that's what I think the DBS is. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's beautifully refined, mm -hmm. the, the exterior of that car. Yeah, and now the value of the manuals are kind of going through the roof. Yes, too. also true. Yeah. Also true. God, it's just it's such a great sounding car. And that's the, you know, if, you're, if you grow up in the UK or you know Aston Martin, like, it's kind of a hit, it's kind of a love-hate relationship because you like they sound beautiful, they look amazing, <laughs> and a lot of people probably hate the value of them because they don't. The, the value seemed to tank a little bit, especially with the new DBS that yep, came out. Yeah, uh, It's kind of, and I mean, you could say the same for Land Rover too. Like they're not doing great. And I heard the other day that no one will insure a Range Rover now in London because they're all getting nicked. Uh, they get stolen, which is what matters. Yes, I, I mean it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of badge of honor. So a good, my good friend Jerry McGovern, who runs uh, design at Land Rover, uh, he's constantly, because he lives in London, but, but works up in yeah. the Midlands uh, at Gaydon. Yeah. And uh, he, even his has been stolen. And when I was still with Ford, we had just taken delivery of a new Range Rover, and it lasted exactly one day in London, and it was gone. But... Uh, I think you know that's that's part of the deal of owning a car that's so popular. Yeah, is Jerry's son Phil McGovern, who, no, who started no. Caffeine and Machine? No, no. Okay, no, no relation. Have you been to Caffeine and Machine? No. You no. know what it is? No. So Caffeine, it's in the UK. Caffeine and Machine, it's like north of the Cotswolds, in kind of like perfect kind of F1 area, great driving roads. Um, it, it's it's an old. He used to work for Jaguar Land Rover doing um, advertising stuff, and he came up with this concept called Caffeine Machine, and he basically bought an old bed and breakfast with like 15 acres, and they've turned it into a mecca for cars. Wow. And so, um, yeah, it's called Caffeine Machine, and it's just a home. They have the theme nights. They have, um, it's a full bed and breakfast. You can stay the night. There's a bar, restaurant. And everybody loves cars. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, so, that sounds yeah, nice. It's, um, yeah, it's just that name. I was like, I've heard that name before, and the guy who runs it, his name's Phil McGovern. Yeah. Um, no, 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 you know, no relation. I, yeah. As far as I know, no relation. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's amazing how, yeah, how all that works out. So, 
how did, I mean, was there a time designing the, 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 when you're working on, on DB9 and the DBS thinking like, I feel like James Bond here. This is one of the coolest things in the world to well, work we, on. Well, we, 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 absolutely. Uh, you always have a sort of a muse that you use. And of course it's James Bond. It's not yeah. going to be anything else. And I happened to be in the middle of the Daniel Craig, Craig. Well, actually it was actually the bridge between the Pierce Brosnan and the Daniel Craig era yeah. when we started working on it. But by the time Daniel Craig rolled the car, or, or the yeah. stunt double rolled the car, uh, then it was Daniel Craig as James Bond. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you're constantly thinking, well, where's... Where's the Broccoli family that control the James Bond franchise? What are they going to do with this? And they, they, didn't, they gave us a little bit of information, but they didn't tell us exactly what the next James Bond was going to be. So you ha always have to imagine that car pulling up and he's pitching the keys to the valet of whatever hotel yeah. he goes to. And uh, we, we just about got that right. Yeah. But uh, it was, again, serendipity that that car and Daniel Craig fit together quite mm -hmm. quite as well as they did. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what uh, is there a specific part of a car that you love designing more than any other? Like, is it the front? Is it like the side? I mean, is there one that just like uh, you think? I don't, I don't enjoy it more than any other, but the most important part of the car is the face. Okay. Uh, because that's how most people within two to three seconds will decide if they like a car or not. Yeah. The second piece is the profile, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's beautiful and balanced and flows together. Yeah. And the, you have something I, I call sort of like the first view, which is maybe 50 to 60 yards away. You can see a car and you see the profile and you start to understand right. sort of how it sits on the ground. And then you have a showroom condition, so you're, you're, you've walked up to it, and now you're looking at details and the jewelry and how how refined and resolved the car is or not. Yeah. And uh, that's sort of the way everyone designs a car. Mm -hmm. Some uh, better than others. Where what's like your process for drawing? You know, inspiration. I guess you know you talk about the aesthetic, and you talk with the Aston. It was like this is designed specifically, kind of thinking James Bond in mind, like. Obviously, not every car is as special as Nasty Mine with a, a figure like James Bond to kind of tie into. What is that kind of process then of, you know, if someone says, hey, we need to design a new car? Like, yeah, It depends. It depends what you're designing, yeah. clearly. Uh, it's easy with an F-150. Mm -hmm. uh, there's any, any number of narratives you can pull up. It's right. all roads go west. It's the Marlboro Man. It's, it's, it's cowboys various. Uh, there's, there's a lot of cowboy hats involved. Uh, if it's a Mustang, it's Steve McQueen, it's Carol Shelby, and I always say, you know, any Mustang that you want to design is always going to be more popular if it says Carol Shelby on the side of it. Yeah. So those are things that you can't help it. People make an emotional connection between the car that they've seen in Bullet, the car that they've seen in Gone in 60 Seconds, the car that they've seen Carol Shelby talking about on TV, yeah. uh, or did see Carol Shelby talking about on TV. Mm -hmm. That is all connected in to how people feel about an automobile. And then you get something that is sort of box standard transportation in the uh, Ford Fusion Toyota Camry class. And you have to invent a narrative around that. And what are you going to make that car say to people that will inspire them to think, oh, I'd really like to have that? Yeah. 
I have a Fusion. Yeah. And I joke with people that it's got an Aston Martin front grill on it because it yeah. looks very similar. <laughs> well, it, it does. And yeah. that, that was, we'd, we had divested Aston Martin by that time. Mm. And we knew it had a little bit of Aston Martin in it. Yeah. But the goal of that design process was to make that car look $10,000 more expensive than it actually yeah. is. And I think we we got there yeah. on that. Yeah. I've been ha- so happy with mine. It drives great. Uh, it's so smooth. And it'll be something I'll drive until the wheels fall off it, uh, which hopefully is a very long time uh so over the years um you must have had some great company cars uh yeah i was very fortunate to have uh, a couple of aston martins uh range rovers various yeah jaguars uh and uh quite a few nice mustangs as well yeah so uh shelby gt350s and my you know, you can, and and you don't keep them long. You're you're constantly trading them out and testing them for the sure. company, and giving feedback, and also analyzing what's working on the present generation that you want to try to improve on the next generation. But, gosh, that's a a great uh, aside to a, a. It's a job that's already super fun, mm-hmm. and oh by the way, one of the perks is you get to drive marvelous cars. Yeah. So, so the Shelby GT350. Um, I, I've always loved because I grew up driving stick in the UK and, you know, the 500, the new 500 obviously went to paddle shift um, and, and, and the 350 went, you know, has always been a manual. Uh, how does that also play into, you know, you're designing kind of like a fast car. The engine in the 350 obviously was a huge statement and something that Ford had never done before, right, with the flat plane crank. And so you're dealing with that as well as I've got to design a car that's, that's worthy of the Shelby name too. Yeah. Um, but from a driving perspective, you know, this car has got to, obviously it's got to look great, but then a designer, how do you how do you kind of marry in the the driving ability like do you have to, is there a team that works on like driving as well oh of course you know, so how, I, how do you guys I, work I would, together basically? I would be I would be blowing up my own horn falsely if I said <laughs> I was in charge of the driving sure. dynamics so there's an at Ford and at every other car company there's an extraordinary team yeah. of engineers that understand driving dynamics and the, the guys that uh, were at Ford at the time this is 10 years ago now yeah. uh, but the guys that were at Ford at the time understood that and this was going to be the 2015 was going to be the first First car with an independent rear suspension yeah. that played into our hands in terms of how we wanted the car to look, uh, and it was still going to look like a muscle car, mm-hmm. but it was going to look a little bit more refined. And it was all, it, we also knew it was going to be the first time in history uh, that the car would be sold in large volume in yeah. the UK and in Europe. Uh-huh. So we had to kind of think about that as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a beautiful looking car, and they, the beauty of American cars is they sound fantastic regardless of what <laughs> speed they're going. That one certainly does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me about um, the. I mean, we'll make a little shift here. You've done some movie stuff. Yeah. How does that come about, and what is that like? Getting a phone call saying I want you to design a cartoon car. Uh, well, it didn't actually. If it had only come that easy. Um, so I was still head of design at Ford, and uh, John Lasseter, who was at Pixar at the time. Uh, and the Pixar team uh, contacted us, and they also contacted General Motors and contacted what was then Chrysler, uh, and wanted to come by and visit studios. And don't ask me why, but they were rebuffed by both Chrysler and General Motors. And I said, absolutely, come over, we'll open the doors to you. And John and I became pretty quick friends, and so we, we did a lot of work with them on the first Cars movie, just to give them a feeling for 
what automotive design looked like. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, designing a car and making a movie is a very similar process. It's about a seven-year process, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for animation. And a lot of what you do ends up on the cutting room floor. So uh, there's a lot of mistakes that are made in designing a car that the public never sees. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of mistakes these days digitally yeah. on, on movies that the public never sees. But we would spend hours talking about uh, the similarities. So when it came time to finally bite the bullet and do the first Cars movie, uh, they brought me in as a consultant. And I got a credit on that, which I was delighted about. And then John went on to become not only the uh, head of Pixar, but uh, the chief creative officer for Disney Pixar. So at that time, he, he brought me in in a more uh, complete capacity, mm -hmm. first to work on Big Hero 6, which I don't know if you would know that I film or not. I don't remember that one. But yeah. I did a little bit of work on, a ro on the robot in that, in that film which was kind of the lead character. Yeah. But where he really wanted me in on the ground floor was on uh, Zootopia. Okay. And so uh, I had left Ford by that time. And uh, so what he did was send me what looked for all the world, Mike, like a police lineup uh -huh. of all the characters he needed cars designed for. Yeah. And they, of course they took me through the... the uh, what the story was going to be, and Buddy Hops was going to be a go from a meter maid to a detective, and all of that was fascinating. But the police lineup was cars that I had to design for everything from a two-inch high field mouse to a giraffe at the other end. And of course, all the animals walked upright yeah. and spoke English. <laughs> and, and so there was a moose, there was a giraffe, there was a hippopotamus, uh, there was a pig. Uh, there, there was everything in between. Yeah. And that was a true kick to work on. Mm -hmm. So when we set out to kind of design those cars, uh, we were sending them back and forth. And I suppose for about a four to five month period there, I was saying, this is kind of what I think. And uh, by the way, we're not going to be able to do anything for a, for a moose with antlers yeah. other than a convertible because we don't know where to put it. Yeah. It's not going to work, is it? And, uh, and the um, the car that we did for the giraffe was uh, articulated because the giraffe had such a long neck. When it would go around a corner, the top part of the car would lean uh, almost nautically uh, to get the giraffe around the corner. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's, it's hilarious. And at the time, I thought I was designing a car, because uh, they don't give everything away. I sure. thought I was designing a car of what they called a couple of gerbils that were like frat boys and they yeah. were a bit feisty and cocky. And it turned out I was designing the car for the, uh, for the guy that worked at the Department of Motor Vehicles who was a sloth. And the, the sloth was extraordinarily slow. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen that movie recently, but it's probably one of the most hilarious pieces of the film. So the juxtaposition between a sloth and this extraordinary sports car that he has to drive was, of course, the funny part of it. <laughs> yeah, the irony, right? Uh, I mean, coming from Maysville, Oklahoma, you probably didn't think you'd be designing cars for Zootopia, right? No, like, What no, a moment that no. is to look back on. No, and, uh, and of course, I, you know, I still do quite a lot of presentations, and I, I want to go through... 
GT40s and, you know, the Avas that I did, or the Beetle or whatever it was. Yeah. Everybody wants to talk about Zootopia, you know, so so shame on me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so your role now, you mentioned that you live in London. Live in London. Um, you moved um, to London when you worked for Ford. Uh, yes, I did. And I've been there 17 years. Okay. Uh, my wife's British. That's home for me. Yeah. Uh, this is my home state. Sure. I'm super proud of it. And it's had a major influence on me. Yeah. But uh, London's my home now. Yeah. What? Um, and you teach now? Uh, I, I, I teach periodically at the Royal College of Art okay. in London. And yeah. that's literally nothing more, Mike, than the, the auto industry was extraordinarily good to me. Yeah. And I want to give something back to the next generation. Okay. So I'm in there maybe these days once a month. Yeah. to talk to students and help where I can. Yeah. And uh, I, I still do that. I'm still doing a, a little bit of advisory roles. Uh, I work with a, a friend out in California that owns, I don't know if you know what a Myers-Manx is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, he's the CEO of Myers-Manx. Okay. And they're electrifying that car. Because they brought them back, right? Yeah, they, they, they just they brought, brought it back. Yeah. And yeah. They, they're, they're doing an, a Myers-Manx 2.0, which is electric. Okay. And that appealed to me. So I, I, I was literally just out in California yeah. with him for a week working. Nice. And then I'm still doing uh, movie work okay. that I can't really talk sure, about. Sure, that's the fair. Yeah. Um, were you out for SEMA or the week after? No, I was out there the re- the uh, week after. How? Uh, yeah, because SEMA's it's like a circus, right? Like, it's crazy. Did you ever have to go to that? Yes, I, I think I had to go to. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to because like, that that uh, that makes no sense as a car show, but as an absolute circus, it's, a, it's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. I, I love watching. It. I love seeing the, the the wacky designs. And there was a there was a car company in Yukon, Oklahoma, um, that took out a carbon fiber '68 Dodge Charger. And they're they're doing a company's called Finale Speed, and they're doing a lot of resto mods, and yeah. that whole market's kicking off. And um, and there's a couple of car guy, a couple of guys that design cars, and I mean, like some of the stuff that they build out there is. It's there phenomenal. are some there are some great uh, car designers in yeah. Oklahoma that that take cars and do retro mods or they do restorations yeah. or or pure hot rods. They're, they're extraordinary. It, yeah, yeah, it's. Right, of all the places you'd think, like car design, you wouldn't think yeah. of Oklahoma, would you? Like well, most a, people it's don't. A, but it's a, it's a car-loving state in yeah. a different way, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, 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 we don't walk anywhere here. Don't no, we, we, we drive everywhere. <laughs> there's no, there's yeah. no uh, sidewalks out here like there is back yeah. home. Uh, so, what, what, what's your uh, kind of views on the current state of car design? You mentioned electrifying the Myers Manx. Obviously, electric car design is. I mean, that, that kind of removes so many boundaries for designers now. They can kind of design. Yeah. It almost takes it back to like a coach building yeah. era. If you'd asked me this uh, a year ago, I would have said, well, you know, we're just on the verge of autonomous cars. And I yeah. don't think we're on the verge of autonomous cars at all now. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, I think uh, electrification is changing the both the face of the car and bo- both the face and the design language of the car. And there are some companies uh, doing that better than others, and I'm, I'm not going to get into the middle of a debate about who I think is doing it right and who's yeah, doing yeah, it yeah. wrong. You're good. Um, but uh, it's simplifying the overall design language of the car, which I think after a period of too much design, if I could put it that way, yeah. over the last 15 years, it's good to see design starting to simplify again. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of busy-looking cars out there, yeah. right? There's a yeah. lot of just stuff that, you know... A nice flowing line down the side of a car would be good, but there's a lot of fins and all the other rest of it. The other thing that I think about, too, is cars keep getting bigger and bigger. 
How does that like, how do you, what are your views on cars just getting bigger and bigger when you look at, you know, let's take a 911, for example, and just the, 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 the development of a 911 compared to, you know, earlier in the, the first one compared yeah. to like, I mean, now they're massive. If you look at a 63 911 and you happen to park it against uh, the new car, yeah. which, which I've, I've done literally out in California in November a year ago, it's, it's almost makes you laugh out loud. Yeah. And and by the way, the design of the new 911 is gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it is. Uh, yeah. they, that real light looks fantastic. That is a company that has their act together and is designing flawless automobiles. Yeah. But it is has grown so much. Uh, the original 911 63, diminutive in comparison, to, and, and doesn't feel particularly safe when you get into it. Everything's relative to, to everything else on the road. So I understand why it's grown. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, I have a slight melancholy for for the old days, but I like I like old things as well. Well, yeah. Part of part of me like loves the Cayman because the Cayman's kind of a perfect mm-hmm. size, especially the RS. And it certainly uh, is. You know, and then the Boxster Spider is a great car. Um, and even you know, talk about the UK, like the Lotuses now, like the, the even the electric ones, they look really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lotus for me, like Lotus design looks fantastic. But also the other car that stands out to me at the moment is the guys at Radford, what Jensen Button's doing with his team. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Kind of Type 62 that yeah. they're redoing. Yeah, very nice cars. And it's, um, you know, just seeing that and seeing what the car that like looks old, but obviously has modern, you know, just old, des- quote, old design, not modern. It's... I think the car, going forward, the car design place is in a, it's in a good space right now. I think so. I think people have rediscovered also that there was a sort of a golden age or an original golden age yeah. in the late 50s, early 60s, particularly in Italy, where everything was uh, more rounded, more genteel, actually felt like weirdly northern Italy, like yeah. you would drive the car there. And then and uh, even Ferrari are sort of circling back on that and understanding what the appeal of that was. Yeah. And it, it, it's somehow in most people's psyche connected back to the narrative of cinema in those days and just feels a bit more glamorous. Yeah. So you're seeing although simple forms, you're seeing very rounded appealing forms mm-hmm. and I think that's the right way to be at yeah. least at the moment. Well and recently that was it that nineteen sixty two GTO sold for 50-something million yeah, dollars. and rightfully so. It's such a beautiful yeah, car. Such a, a good-looking yeah, car. It's a masterpiece. Unbelievable. Uh, finishing up then, something fun. Um, if you could drive one car for the rest of your life, what would it be? Gosh, that's a that's a tough one. So I've, when I left Ford in 2014, I put a GT350, one of the first uh, one of the first few that was made in actually 2015, yeah. and then it started mass production in 2016. I put one in a garage in a friend of mine's or a warehouse yeah. in just outside of Detroit. I've never seen that car. I just know it's there because he sends me photos, yeah. and so that's a car that I'm going to drive for the rest of my life. The only dilemma I've got, Mike, is that. I don't know where to put it in London at yeah. the moment. And the gas prices so in London I, are through the I, roof, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go visit it, yeah. uh, but at some point, I'm going to pick that up, drive it out to California, and give it to my son. What? That's amazing. Uh, what color is it? It's the uh, GT350 Mustang. Yeah. It's got uh, five-speed. Yeah. Uh, it's got the flat crank. Yeah. 
It's got the racing interior, so it's very stripped Car down license, in the interior. Yeah. Is it the AW? Yes. Okay. And so... Carbon fiber uh, wheels. Yeah, it's got seat, all of that. No back seats. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so it's absolutely pared down yeah. to be a serious race car. Amazing. And it's not something that's really set up to drive around on the road, but it's certainly something you want to look at. That, getting in that car, I drove a, a 350. Um, one of the sponsors of the podcast is a local Ford dealership here, and they had one, and I took it out for a day. And no matter what speed you're going, I just smiled constantly. <laughs> just like the yeah. sound of it, the feeling. Um, did, is yours in like that heritage livery? Like the, uh, the white it's in, is it in? It's in uh, a color that it was only shown for, only uh, done for one year yeah. called Avalanche. Oh, which Avalanche, is, great. Which, which looks like primer gray at yeah. first. And then you realize it's actually a very sophisticated light pearl under yeah. it. It's got uh, black livery with very small orange pinstripes that um, down nice. the two stripes on the outside and yeah. black interior obviously so white stripes or black stripes black stripes black stripes yeah god it's a, such a good looking car it's a, it's a nice uh, car I cannot wait to hear how the travel from you know uh, travel across the country to uh, to give that car to your son is going to be fantastic that's a couple of years away but oh, it's going to happen it's going to happen that is awesome what for you over your design career and over all the cars have been designed doesn't have to be one of yours um what is one car that you wish that you would, could be able to put your name on? Oh, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Thank you. Uh, well, almost anything that Zagato did mm. in the late 50s, yeah. I would say would be one. Uh, the other piece of that, if you go back to the late 50s, would be a majority of the work Gia was doing in Torino at the time. Okay. And because Gia was part of Ford when I was there, uh, we were able to delve into the archives and they did some extraordinary work. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think usually of specific cars, but of specific mindset and eras of cars. Yeah. And Gia and Zagato were very, very similar in their approach. Yeah. Last question. What do you think about the current state of just the hypercar market? And not the market, but just the current state of hypercar design. You know, you think of Zenvo, you think of Pagani. What Christian Koningsegg is doing is just mind-blowing. Yeah. You know, the Bugattis that are coming out. Like, what? Because those, from, they're the poster cars, right? There's the cars that, you know, like the Countaches, you know, or like the yeah, F40s. That's the next or, generation. It's the next yeah. generation, right? Yeah. So they're the poster cars it's, people are growing up at. It, this, this, my answer may disappoint you. Those cars aren't for me. You don't care at all. No. no. <laughs> Uh, I always say there's an ask for every seat, yeah, and, is, and yeah. someone's going to buy those. Yeah, things. someone yeah. is going to. And yeah. it, it's a, it's a uh, for lack of a better term, it's kind of a pissing contest car, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely. Right. absolutely. I did see someone bought a Zonda and put it just just mounted it on their wall in their house. I'm just like there's a picture well, on the internet of just I, a Zonda in an apartment. I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> it's just expensive artwork. Uh, uh, well, Jay, thank you so much for coming in. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you made the trip. Congratulations. And uh, do me one favor when you go back to London, and that is to eat a Greg's chicken bake, because I miss those <laughs> so much. Very funny. Uh, uh, I miss those so much. Dear, uh, oh dear. Okay, yeah, I promise. Thank you so much. That was a really interesting interview from your side as well, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. For people listening, uh, we will catch you next episode. Cheers. Thank you, mate. Fantastic. 
Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at oklahomahof. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el reno now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.